Greetings from North Hill Presbyterian Church. It's good uh, to be with you this morning. It's an honor and privilege to be able to uh, bring God's words to you this morning. So uh, why don't we just uh, jump right into it. Take your Bibles or your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. The title of the sermon is God is Faithful to His Fear or synonymously God is Faithful to His Word. And hopefully that will become apparent to you as we work our way through this text and a couple texts in the New Testament this morning. You'll want to maybe have your hands ready to go to uh, Mark chapter 6 and Luke chapter 4, but uh, we're going to start as a jumping off place, Proverbs chapter 1. But before we get to that, I want to kind of set some guidelines for your thinking, things you're probably likely already aware of, things that you know, but they'll just kind of set the stadium as it were before we run the bases of Proverbs chapter 1. So I'll go through these uh, rather quickly. If you're an avid note taker, you might want to just hold off for just a second because I'm going to work through these pretty quickly. But this will just kind of give us a framework with which to understand Proverbs chapter 1. A few key points as we get going this morning. Number one, wisdom is more valuable than anything that you can desire. Proverbs chapter 8 verse 11. Proverbs also says in all of your getting and all of your accumulating, accumulate wisdom. There's nothing that you desire. Think of the things that you are desiring to accomplish, the things you are desiring to accumulate right now. All those things combined cannot be compared to wisdom. Number two, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, chapter 9 of Proverbs, verse 10. And when we think about the fear of the Lord, I think there's, I mean, those are sermons unto themselves, are they not? You could spend an entire sermon series on the fear of the Lord. But I want to give you a working definition of the fear of the Lord, because it's going to be important when we come to the Gospels and we look at uh, some instances where Jesus is interacting with the Jews. That word fear is not a pleasant word, is it? Nobody here enjoys fear. Nobody here wants to feel or sense fearfulness. We run from it. We fight it or we flee from it. But there is an element or there are at least two elements to the fear of the Lord that are unpleasant. And I want to just give you a working definition. Two unpleasant elements to the fear of the Lord, one pleasant or delightful element. The first part of our working definition is the fear of the Lord is an unpleasant awareness or experience of God's complete holiness. An unpleasant awareness or an experience of God's complete holiness. As we contemplate ourselves, our proclivity to sin, and as we contemplate God's complete purity and righteousness, it should cause within us a little bit of unpleasantness. As it did the prophet Isaiah, as he got a vision of God's glory, as he saw the seraphims on either side of the Lord crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. What was Isaiah's response to that? Someone who believed God, someone who trusted God, who served God. His response is, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm shattered. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The experience and the awareness of God's complete and total purity caused him to say, woe is me even though he delighted in that God who was terrifying in that moment. The second element of the fear of the Lord is an unpleasant awareness or experience of God's total otherness. God is not like us. And in Scripture, you will see people that come into contact with God, and they are unnerved by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are unnerved by the power of God. I think several weeks ago you had this passage preached to you, but when the disciples are on the boat and they are rowing and they are, they're navigating for their lives, we're talking about professional fishermen, 
seasoned sailors who come to the conclusion, this isn't going to work. We are going to die. So they wake Jesus up who is sleeping in the boat and he stands up and he says, peace, be still. In the winds and the water, complete calm. Now you would think in that moment, it would look like something when the Atlanta Braves won the World Series, right? These men would start hopping and mobbing and just relieved joy, crying, high-fiving each other and just amazed at what they had saw. But the text clearly says they were greatly Afraid, for they said to themselves, Who is this that speaks to the waves and the wind? And even they obey him. In that moment, they were more fearful, they were more unnerved by the power of God on display by just a spoken word than they were at the thought of imminent death and being capsized. Those are the two unpleasant elements of the fear of the Lord. The third is a pleasant element it is a pleasant and hopeful experience. An awareness of this fearful God who by his grace calls us his own. Who by his mercy takes that power and takes that righteousness. He takes the righteousness and credits it to us through Jesus Christ. And that same total other power is in reserve for us to call upon in our time of need. Which is why he said, if you would just have but the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be removed. And it will be removed. The fear of the Lord is awareness and an experience of unpleasant elements of God's complete holiness, his total otherness, and yet a delight to fear in his name. Because as Paul writes to the Ephesians, notice what he says when he says in Ephesians 1 in his opening address to them, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his totally other power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Point number three, the fear of the Lord is the word of the Lord. You ever thought about that? The fear of the Lord is the word of the Lord. Psalm 19, this is a familiar passage for all of us. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The rules of the Lord are true. We understand those words, law, testimony, precepts, rules. They're synonyms for what? Anybody? They're synonyms for the word, right? We get that. We understand that. But packaged in between there in verse 9 of Psalm 19, it says, The fear of the Lord is clean. The fear of the Lord is the same as the precepts of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the same as the testimony of the Lord. How can that possibly be? How is the fear of the Lord the word of the Lord? It's because when we come to the word of the Lord, when we read his word, when we hear his word, when we sing his word, when we meditate on his word, his word is living and active. And it's in his word where he reveals to us that he is completely holy. He is totally other. And we have those experiences where we read things like this and it kind of unnerves us a little bit. It encroaches upon our pride. It encroaches upon the feebleness of our faith. That's why the fear of the Lord is the word of the Lord because that's where we are shown. That's where we are given the examples of his complete holiness, his total otherness. 
Point number four, the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 2, 6, the Lord gives wisdom, it comes from his mouth. It's the same thing Paul is saying in 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out or inspired by God. And what is his scripture profitable for? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped unto every good work. The word of the Lord is not just words amongst many other words. It's not words in the sea of words that are out there. Betty Crocker's cookbook and Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effectual People, those are just words amongst words, right? I can use them for different purposes. They have different intents, but at the end of the day, they're cold, dead words on cold, dead paper. God's word comes to us in the same medium, but the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 4, the word of the Lord is what? It's living. It's active. When you read it, when you meditate on it, when you memorize it, when you hear it taught, it's doing something. Isaiah chapter 55 says, The word of the Lord does not return to him void, but will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. Which means the word of the Lord is living, it's active, it's on mission, and it's presenting to us the complete purity and righteousness of God. He is totally without sin. He is righteous. He is pure. Woe is me because I am not. He's totally other than I am. He can speak a word and universes spring into existence fully formed and functioning. It unnerves me a little bit. But I delight to come to that word. I delight to fear in his name. Why? Because his word tells me that that power, that holiness is towards me. It is towards us who are united to Christ through faith and repentance. Seven and eight, last two points before we get to our text. And just listen to this because you're going to see this uh, illustrated in our texts. To reject to disobey, to find little or moderate value in the word of God is to find little or moderate value in the person of God, to live without fear of God is to court disaster and ruin by alienating yourself from the person and the power of God. Conversely, number eight, to accept, to obey, to believe, to pursue God's word as something of immeasurable gain that I wish to accumulate because nothing that I desire can be compared to it, is to find incomparable value in the person of God. It's to delight delight in the fear of the Lord and to walk in the fear of the Lord. It's to receive by God's unmeasurable power and grace, Ephesians 1, uncommon blessing, uncommon peace, Uncommon satisfaction, uncommon contentment. It's what I desire for myself as I walk with the Lord. It's what I desire for my family as they walk with the Lord. It's what I desire for you as God's people. Is the uncommon power of a God who is totally other, totally righteous, but those things are directed as himself towards you. Take a look at Proverbs chapter 1, begin in verse 20 and verse 33. We'll move through this rather quickly as well, and I'll illustrate it from the Gospels. But here now, the inerrant and the infallible, the Word of God. Wisdom, the Word of God. Cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrances of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? 
How long scoffers will you delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one is heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm, you think of Noah. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, the word, the wisdom of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me, my word, my wisdom, will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. The Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's ask him to open our hearts to it. Father, thank you for this word. It's pointed. It's direct, but Lord, it is comforting, even as we are unnerved at times by the way it encroaches upon us as we struggle with sin. Father, as we come to this word and we consider what it has for us this morning, would you open our hearts and our minds to receive it, to contemplate its claims and its truths, to consider its illustration, and to respond, Lord, if need be, with repentance or to respond with greater worship and delight as we seek to walk in the fear of the Lord. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs chapter 1, wisdom is speaking, and it's a personification of wisdom. Theologians and common, uh, people who write commentaries debate on, as to who this is that is speaking. Is it Christ? Is it not? I won't get into all that, but I think we can at least, at the very least, say wisdom is presented as the person of God speaking directly and engaging directly his created beings. There is no thus saith the Lord as a prophet would do on behalf of the Lord. Wisdom here is speaking in the first person. And wisdom says, I will pour out my spirit upon you. I will make my words, my truth known to you. So God is clearly speaking and engaging directly with his created beings. Where does wisdom speak? Where does wisdom cry out? Where does wisdom speak? I think many times we think, well, God speaks in the quiet of the study. In the early morning when there's, the kids are asleep, I've got a piping hot cup of coffee, and I open God's word and I contemplate it. And wisdom does speak there. But notice what this text says. Where is wisdom crying out? In verse 20, wisdom cries aloud in the noisy street. In the noisy day-to-day life, wisdom is speaking. Wisdom is active. How much noise do we have in our world today? Is there not so much noise? Media, social media, internet, Radio, conversations. Wisdom is not just relegated to the quiet time of the study. Wisdom's crying in the noisy street. She raises her voices in the market, verse 20. Many of you, like myself, we go to work every day. Any of you know the drumbeat of business and the pressures and the stress of trying to meet a deadline? Make a sale that will make the quarter? 
improve quality for your biggest customer. In the middle of all that stress and pressure, guess who is active? God is active. His word is active. Wisdom is active, raising her voice in the markets. She cries out at the entrance gates of the city, at that place where you begin to prepare yourself for what you're about to experience as you go into that city. Now, I've never been to California, but I imagine it's a little bit different than it is in South Carolina, right? If I were riding down the highway and I saw the signs to Los Angeles, I would begin to prepare myself for what I'm about to experience. I would be making decisions about where we're going to go and what we're going to do, resolving this is how we'll enter into this city. Wisdom meets you at the places where you are resolving to take action and preparing yourself for whatever it is you have in front of you. She is not quiet. What does wisdom say? Verse 20, she speaks truth. Verse 23, she makes promises. Verse 24 calls out warnings. Hey, hey, no, stop. Think about that. Stretches out her hand to help. Hey, I got this. Trust me. We'll get through this. Issues reproofs, corrections, training for your growth in righteousness that you may be fully equipped. That is what wisdom cries out. Notice in verse 22, there are responses to wisdom, and there's three different, three different responses that are offered here. There is the response of the simple. How long, simple ones, will you love being simple? What I understand this to mean is some people hear the wisdom or some people hear wisdom's cries, but they don't respond with critically to what wisdom is saying. They just respond in being easily influenced by whatever the masses around us are doing. Well, he loves the Lord and she loves the Lord. Well, I'll just go along with them, whatever they're doing. I'm not really thinking about what the word is God is calling me to. I'm just easily influenced in following the masses. The simple are also easily influenced by their own emotions. We get scared. We get angry. We get frustrated. And we act and we say and we do things that aren't consistent with what God's word calls us to. Maybe not consistent with who we're trying to be. But in that moment, it's just simple and easy and instinctive to reply the way that we do. Second group of people are the scoffers who delight in their scoffing. I think a lot of you probably have an understanding of what scoffing is. Scoffing is to be arrogant and to be proud. Scripture would call it to be wise in one's own eyes. Well, I'm clearly not as... Simple as the simple-minded. I think clearly about things. But the, the scoffer has a tendency to reason away God's word when it starts to become unpleasant. When it starts to encroach upon sin and pride and self-regard, the scoffer has a tendency to kind of hop over those things and, and make an argument for other things. That word contemptuous uh, is, is a definition of scoffing. And it doesn't mean just to hold in disgust. When I was in high school, I took driver's ed, and the tennis coach who taught us driver's ed gave, me, gave us a phrase that stuck with me forever. All of you know it, so just fill in the blank when I get there. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. And his point was, guys, you're going to come to thousands of stop signs in your life, and that sign is going to symbolize certain things to you. And you'll become so familiar with it and the circumstances surrounding it, you'll think, well, nobody's coming and I'm in a hurry, so I'm just going to go right through it this time. And you do so at your own peril, not seeing that car that's flying by and hits you broadside. Or not seeing that police officer who's ducked behind a hedge who pulls out and writes you a ticket because you rolled through the stop sign. Familiarity breeds contempt. And do we not also do that with the Lord's word many times? You ever been in a situation where the Lord brings the power of his wisdom to bear upon your mind? 
You're in the midst of the noise. You're in the midst of the marketplace. And a word pops in your mind and you think, yeah, that's true. I need to study that in more detail in my quiet time. And God's saying, no, you need to contemplate it and meditate on it now. I'm here to offer counsel now. You need this now. Scoffers, familiar, treat the word with contempt. Webster's Dictionary definition of contempt means a lack of respect or fear for things you would normally respect or fear. In certain circumstances, I would respect or fear God speaking to me, but in this moment, I've got to make a decision. I've got to move on. It's contempt. It's scoffing. And then there's the response of fools. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Those are the three responses. If you notice in verse 24, all three respond to wisdom's call alike. Verse 24, they refuse to listen. They do not heed. Verse 25, they ignore the counsel of wisdom's cries. They flatly reject wisdom, verse 25. They turn away, verse 32. They respond in complacency, the complacency of contempt, the complacency of just being simple and moving with the mass. But for one group who are also in the streets, for one group who are also amidst the marketplace and at the gates of the city, they're humble in their own eyes when they compare themselves with God. They tremble at delight at the power of his word when it comes to mind, when they read it, when it's presented to them. They choose the fear of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the wisdom of the Lord. And notice what the text says there. God says, I will pour out my spirit to you. This is the way. Walk ye in it. I will make my words known to you like a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. He makes them like full-fruited green trees by streams of water whose leaves do not wither, and all that they do, they prosper. So that's the base of the text. And I could spend a lot of time with other things trying to illustrate this. But to answer the question, what does Proverbs look like by way of illustration? What does it look like to see, written down, wisdom crying out? Wisdom working in power. Wisdom stretching out its hand to aid, to counsel, to reprove, to save. And to see simple and scoffers and fools flatly reject it to their own peril. And to see the humble and the contrite in spirit respond to it in humility and faith. Not surprisingly, it looks like the life and the ministry of Jesus. Turn to Mark chapter 6, please. Mark chapter 6. Jesus, in early in his ministry, is going to his hometown. He's going to Nazareth. He is going to a place and he is going to a people who are most predisposed to respond to him in faith and repentance, right? He's going to his home folks. He's going to people who are church folks. They are in the synagogues every week and they are being taught the law and the prophets. They are being taught to look for a Messiah who is to come. And Jesus is invited to come to the pulpit and to deliver the word. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He went, away, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogues. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works 
done by his hands. Do you see what they're saying right there? You know, normally we get Matthew Eichard. Normally we get Steve Dickey. But man, this guy preaches with power and authority. Did you sense that? Did you feel that? Did you see what he did with his hands in healing that child and casting out that evil spirit? Text says they were astonished. They felt the weight of the total holiness of God, the total otherness of God as he opened his living and active word to them. Wisdom is operating in the power of God, in the fear of God. Wisdom is reaching out its hand. But wisdom is also rather unpleasant, is it not? You know the story of the Jews. Jesus says, I am the Messiah. And they say what? No, you're not. I am God. No, you're not. Aren't you the carpenter's son? <laughs> Don't we know this guy? We know his brothers and sisters. You're the one with that strange birth and all of that. Verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The wisdom of God, the power of God is on display, and they're astonished. They feel the weight of it, and yet they're offended. It's unpleasant. The people most predisposed to respond in delightful fear turn away, refuse to listen. Verse 4, and Jesus said to them, he senses this, he knows what's going on in their heart. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Notice this text. It's one of only two places where this happens to Jesus, and we'll look at the other one in a moment. Verse 6, and he marveled. Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. That word marveled means to blow out, and you get it. It's when you go... He has this moment where he just marvels at the ability for them to not respond to the gospel and to his claims to who he was, even though they felt the weight of it, they took offense at him. Turn over to Luke chapter 4. Let me show you the parallel passage here as of his time in Nazareth, because Jesus goes on to say a couple other things, and it'll be important for us to see as we move forward. Luke chapter 4, verse 24, he goes on and says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. He senses their rejection. He knows their rejection of him. And he issues a word of prophecy as it will turn out to be. He says, okay, you don't get that. You're not responding to the power and the wisdom of God being presented to you. Let's go back in our history. Remember that time when widows were dying because of a great famine? And people cried out to God and God didn't answer? Well, God did answer, but he sent his prophet to a, a Sidonian widow and her son. And he fed them, and he sustained them. But to none of the Jews who rejected his word and who rejected him, he did not send them to them. He goes on, and he, gets, he goes one step further. He says, remember that time when in our history lepers were dying in Israel, and people cried out to God, and people continued to die? Well, God sent his prophet not to Israel to heal somebody, but sent him to Naaman the Syrian, the head of a Gentile army. 
A powerful man. And because he submitted to the word of God as the widow, the Sidonian widow submitted to the word of God, God helped them. God reached out his hand. God saved. God demonstrated his power, his total other power, his total other holiness to them, and they responded in faith. How'd that go over with the home folks? Didn't go over too good, did it? In verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue, in the church, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down a cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The complete wisdom and power of God is on display and they reject it. He issues a word of prophecy and after being offended at their astonishment at the weight of what he was saying, now they're filled with wrath to the point that they want to kill him. Because what's he done? He's encroached upon their pride. He's encroached upon their sin. And they recognize it. And it's unpleasant. The complete holiness of God always is when we compare it and contemplate it in light of our own sinfulness. And they want nothing of him. So Jesus moves on to Capernaum. Stay in Luke chapter 4. He moves on to another Jewish city. And we're going to see the same pattern play out. Now Capernaum is where Peter and Andrew and Matthew are called as disciples. The centurion's son, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, the paralytic, are healed. Jesus casts out an unclean spirit, raises Jairus' daughter to life. So ministry takes place here. The power of God is on display with mighty works. The power of God is on display in the weight of the word. Look at verse 31 of chapter 4 of Luke. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Again, they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Even unclean spirits are recognizing the total holiness of God, the total other power of God, and are submitting to him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And, when they, and they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports went about him in all the places in the surrounding region. Surely, surely the Jews in Capernaum will respond differently as a whole than the Jews in Nazareth did, right? And the answer is no. Matthew, yes. Andrew, yes. Peter, yes. A few here and there, yes. But in Luke chapter 10, Jesus issues a series of woes to cities who rejected his word and his acts, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum. But there is this one story in Luke chapter 7. Turn over a few pages. Luke chapter 7. While he's in Capernaum, he is approached about a centurion. Remember what he said in Nazareth before he left Nazareth and went to Capernaum? He said, you rejected me as your forefathers rejected God. Therefore, God will send me to your enemies, Gentiles, and they will submit to me. They will receive my salvation. They will respond to the power and the holiness of God. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings and in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Now understand this, a centurion is what? He's a Roman. He's a Gentile. He is a military leader. He is a man of power and authority and his sole one of his sole responsibilities is making sure things like the Jewish religion doesn't create an insurrection and a threat to Caesar and Rome. He is one who is most predisposed to not receive Jesus to not believe Jesus, to have no thought about Jesus being greater than he. 
When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal the servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who built us our synagogue. They're saying he's worthy just like they feel they're worthy because he's done good deeds. He's done good things that are commendable. And they're entreating Jesus to go. Verse 6, and Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent personal friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Here, a man least disposed to respond to the power of God's holiness, the power of God's otherness, sends friends and says, no, 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 I'm not worthy. Yes, I'm a man of authority. I, too, am under authority, but I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. In fact, I don't deem myself worthy to come into your own presence. Notice what he goes on to say. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Look back up in verse 7. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. I don't need to see you come in and put your hand on his forehead. Yeah, he's sick probably appendicitis, but I can handle this. He doesn't need to see Jesus walk in and size him up. Is he all he claims to be? Is he all I've heard about? In humility and in submission to the total otherness and the total holiness of God, he says, just say what? The word. Just say the living and active word and let my servant be healed. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these sayings, second time in all the scripture, he marveled. But this time it's, huh. he stops and with admiration, he considers the faith that has just been expressed. This man doesn't even need to see my mighty works. I just need to say the word and this man will believe. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This man, predisposed to pride and power, bows before Christ in complete humility. This man walks in fear of God's total otherness because he knows that all Jesus needs to do is just say the word and it shall be done. This man believes in Christ so much he doesn't need to see it to believe that it will happen, which sounds an awful lot like Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 1 and we'll wrap it up. We'll close. In Proverbs chapter 1, wisdom is living and active. It's not simply in the quiet meditation of the word in private, but it's in the noise and the life, the internet, relationships and emotions that are stirred up. Wisdom is crying out in the midst of that. It cries out in the pressure and the speed of the marketplace at the heads of the street. She raises her voice. She stretches out her hand, offering counsel, reproof, instruction, blessing, salvation, peace. Wisdom cries out to those who are not walking into the fear of the Lord. And to the simple, she cries out, stop being simple. Consider my word in that moment. Respond in the fear of the Lord to the word of the Lord. And if that's you this morning, wisdom cries out and says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. She cries out to the scoffer, the one who is wise in his own eyes, to the one who 
is showing no fear or respect for something that they normally show fear and respect. And if that's you this morning, wisdom is declaring, but this is the one to whom I will look, God speaking. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, the centurion, the Sidonian widow. She cries out to the fool, woe to you, woe to you. And if that's you, the word speaks to you this morning saying from John 12, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken, that word will judge him on the last day. And then wisdom cries out to those who are walking in the fear of the Lord, who are walking in humility of spirit when compared to God's total holiness, to God's total otherness. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. It's what Jesus says, the Father and I will come and we'll make our home with you as you respond to my word and keep my commandments. And the choice is ours in verse 29, to stop being simple, to refuse the complacency of contempt and familiarity, and to choose the fear of the Lord. Father, I thank you for the kind attention to your word this morning. And Lord, I just want to praise you for your complete and total holiness, that you are without sin. You are completely righteous in all of your actions, all of your attitudes, all of your works. And by your grace, you have chosen to credit your son's righteousness to me because of his work on the cross through the gift of your covenant grace, giving me faith and repentance. And Father, as the stories of Scripture illustrate, Lord, as we struggle and wrestle with sin, we can still, at times, be caught up in simplicity. We can come, become so familiar that we fa fail to respect and fear that which we would normally respect and fear. And Father, I pray that you would give us a heart to delight, to fear in your name, to delight, to fear in your word, to delight in the total otherness of you that says, my God can do far more abundantly than I can even ask or think, and I will trust in him. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.